Hello. I am, oh, is this a, was this a portable microphone? It feels like I'm, my voice is booming more than I thought it would. Um, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Ethan, for that beautiful introduction. I didn't know I had a creed decor, <laughs> but, now, but now I do. And, and that, what you said about the book using personal experience as a tuning fork, I think is really beautiful and um, resonates a lot with me. Um, and I thought I would read, I'm going to say a few words about the collection as a whole and how it came together and some of the questions that guided my writing of it. But then I'm going to read from two different pieces that land in different spots in terms of how the self is encountering the world and how I'm sort of balancing describing my personal experience of an encounter with that act of looking outward and recording what I see. Um, and so the, the collection didn't come about because I sat down one day or got up one day and decided to write a book about empathy. It wasn't as intentional and cohesive as that. Um, I'd started writing essays that on the surface seemed to be about quite different things. I went to a um, 125-mile ultramarathon in Tennessee. I took a bus tour through gang territories in LA. Um, I went through my own health troubles and started writing about them. Um, but as I investigated in these different directions, I started to feel that there were questions that were common to all of them. Things like, how do we try to imagine our way into the experience of other people? Things like, how do we make our pain legible to other people? Or how do we try to read the pain of others um, in structured ways as tourists, uh, in structured ways as readers and writers, or in unstructured ways just as human beings caught in encounters? Um, so I started to think about, what if I put all these pieces together and some of them were quite personal and some of them were more critical and in some of them I was working as a journalist uh, and let all of those different modes speak to each other, see what happened when they were all forced into the space of the same volume. Um, and that's how the collection came into being. Um, and as Ethan said, once I'm done reading, I would really love questions, anything about what I've read, about the collection, about being a writer, um, horribly embarrassing questions about my personal life, any of it. Um, I, would love, I would love to hear what you're thinking and wondering in response to all of this. Um, so I thought to start, I'm going to read from an essay that I, that I actually don't read from very much. And I realized that for whatever set of reasons I've been thinking about it a lot recently and some of the issues that came up in it. And so it felt like time to go back into it and, and share it again. And it's a piece called Lost Boys. The first film begins with bicycles salvaged from a muddy creek. We're in the woods. Men stand to their shins in dirty water, moving awkwardly in button-down shirts, speaking in ragged Arkansas accents, saying, don't let nobody in here, like boys defending a fort, cordoned by yellow tape. Except they aren't boys. There are no boys, which is the point. The boys are dead. They say boys killed them. The police 
stand over three bodies so unbelievably pale and thin on the ground, hog-tied by their shoelaces, their ghost skin stuck with green leaves. They look like sleeping changelings. Changeling means a child stolen by spirits or else the demon left in his place. Three boys were killed in May in 1993 and in their place three demons were found delivered as sacrifice. The film's opening shots crackle with the back and forth of police radio. The officers don't know what to do with these bodies. The film is gray and bleary. The visual quality seems plucked from that strange purgatory just after waking when you are trying to remind yourself that whatever you dreamed, a death, a guilt, some wreckage, isn't real. That failed hope thickens this gray light. Gradually, music swells under the voices of the police. You can barely hear the men anymore, but you can see the darker lines of water on their pants where they have waded into the creek. Two of the boys were drowned. One bled to death on the banks. The music is Metallica, the early chords of Welcome Home, Sanitarium. Its volume rises stubbornly, obscuring the sounds of the investigation. It sounds like a kid turning up the stereo in his bedroom to drown out the sound of his father's voice beyond the door. The case. Here's what happened. Three boys were killed, three more were charged, and three films were made by two men who spent more than 15 years following the story. On May 6, 1993, Stephen Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore were found in a patch of woods behind a truck stop in an Arkansas town called West Memphis. Three teenagers, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., Jason Baldwin, and Damien Eccles, were brought into custody and charged on counts of capital murder. The murders were deemed satanic rituals, and Damien was called a Satanist. He and Jason were known for wearing black, loving heavy metal, and sketching wizards. Their hair was long. They hated where they came from. They were teenagers, basically, charged with a brutal crime on largely circumstantial evidence. Two New York filmmakers, Joe Berliner and Bruce Sinofsky, decided to make a film, and then a sequel, and then a third, to show the world how this trio, soon known as the West Memphis Three, got to prison and stayed there. The trilogy, called Paradise Lost, follows the accused through their original trials, their appeals, and the years of their incarceration. <coughs> the third film was already in post-production by the time something unexpected happened. The men filed something called an Alford plea on August 19, 2011, and were released. This was basically the state admitting it was wrong without admitting it was wrong. The release appears as an epilogue to the last film and Though it emerges from an exhaustive legal tangle the film makes comprehensible, it still feels like an unaccountable miracle, an ending that might have been called unbelievable had the films been anything but documentary. The place. You see a lot of highways in Paradise Lost. You see a lot of highways because West Memphis has a lot of highways. The town sits where two of the country's biggest interstates, I-55 and I-40, intersect at the Mississippi River. 
Real Memphis is just across the water. These days, average per capita income is just under 20,000 a year. The films seem fascinated by the arteries of the city. Its camera keeps swooping along the lines they carve over concrete lots and beige mall roofs, trailer parks and junk trucks on dirt shoulders. Metallica provides the soundtrack for all these panoramic shots, lending music to the ugliness of it all, the sameness, the irony of being trapped poor in a land full of highways going everywhere else. These aerial views begin to tell the story underneath this story, which is a story about poverty. It's a story about double wides and disrepair and chain smoking and chain link fences and weeds growing through rusted truck cabs and neighborhoods built around the fact of highways and boys who hang out at convenience stores and break into trailers with their girlfriends and mothers with hair gone crunchy from gel and mothers with pill habits. This is a story about white trash families kneeling at the graves of their sons. This is a story about people who felt invisible before this tragedy brought them into view. It's a story about boys who can't afford their own suits or their own legal representation. They take whatever the state hands them and they will continue doing this for years until a set of films makes it possible for them to do otherwise. Jesse's stepmom sums it up pretty nicely. If we had money, she says, do you think these three boys would have been picked on? The Woods. The bodies were found in a patch of forest called Robin Hood Hills, a swath of lush green nestled beside its truck stop. It's right next to the highway, but large enough to get lost in. The fallen Eden of the overly developed world skirts the fallen Eden of these woods. Robin Hood Hills should summon a merry band of outlaws, but every time I hear it, I think of Peter Pan instead. My mind insists on the fairy tale that best applies. Peter Pan means Neverland, where boys never become men. Boys is a confusing word when you're trying to tell this story. Three boys accused of killing three boys. Six characters splitting custody of youth, but not of innocence. These are not boys that murdered our kids, one victim's father says. They stopped being boys when they planned this. The trailers for the film show a three-by-two grid of photos, school portraits of the dead boys forming the top row, mug shots of the accused underneath. The visual insistence on this geometric alignment, on the news, in the papers, stems from the same hunger for answers that eventually prompted the conviction. The compulsion to find a symmetric solution to all this mess. Three victims, three killers. A three by two grid is comprehensible as a spreadsheet. People crave some web of correspondence, however evil, something captured and framed by right angles, made right, made orderly, in a still, six stills, finally kept still, finally ordered. The accused. Why did Jamian and Jason and Jesse get arrested? Jesse confessed is why, and implicated the other two. Confession 
can be hard to see around, but Jesse's confession looks pretty frail in context. He's brought into the station on nothing and treated like a criminal. He's got an IQ of 72, which puts him at roughly the mental capacity of a six-year-old. He's interrogated for 12 hours straight, and only the last 41 minutes are taped. He gets some important details wrong before he's guided into getting them right. He says the murders happened around noon when the boys were still in school until he's corralled into admitting they actually happened at night. I know false confessions happen all the time. I'm horrified by them, of course, and by the fact that many can't admit, can't accept that they happen, and horrified by the justice system that lets them happen, that forces them to happen. And still, despite all this, it's hard to deny how convincing it is to hear a voice confessing to a crime. I feel compelled against myself listening to the recording as it's played during Jesse's trial. How could it be anything but the truth? Why would somebody speak words that they didn't mean? Western culture, says literary theorist Peter Brooks, has made confessional speech a prime mark of authenticity, par excellence, the kind of speech in which the individual authenticates his inner truth. An authenticated inner truth. Twelve hours, a couple of cops trying to do their jobs. <clears throat> After his conviction, Jesse is offered a reduced sentence to repeat his confession at Damien and Jason's trial. He refuses. He could have years of his life back, and he says no. Jesse is tiny. At one point, his defense lawyers refer to him as little Jesse. Little Jesse, not big enough to be a boy killer. He's dwarfed by the officers who escort him into court. He's dwarfed by his own suit. Michael Moore's father wonders why taxpayer money has funded suits for the accused. They're in jail, he says. They should wear jail clothes. This is the tempting tautology of accusation, guilty until proven innocent. Wear your jail clothes until we decide you deserve something else. Jesse wears clothes that don't fit. He looks like he's playing dress up. He looks like the little boy he's forfeited his right to be. He's got ruffled hair and he mumbles and there's still some joy and mischief in his grin when it comes. In his cell, he keeps Hallmark cards from his family lined on a shelf. He reads their messages in a shaky, effortful voice, sounding out every syllable. He's partway between schoolboy and man. He's propped up a magazine picture of a chick in a bikini. When Jesse talks to his father on the phone from prison, their conversation is wrenchingly banal. How are you? All right. All right? Yeah, I'm all right. But it eventually gets around to the subject of a hurt hand. Jesse punched the metal toilet in his cell. He's worried a bone might be broken. His father says, if you can move it, it ain't broken. There is a deep care evident between them. At moments, Jesse Sr. still laughs. The camera gets close on his laughter. A father takes pleasure in his son over a telephone line, despite everything. In an interview, Jesse is asked what he does at night. I just cry a lot, he says and then I go to sleep. <laughs> At the time of his trial, 
Jason Baldwin looks too young for puberty, much less the death penalty. It's heartbreaking. His hair is light blonde like an aura around his head, something from 19th century spirit photos. When I watch him, I feel almost broken at his frailty, his teeth as skewed as his mother's, a gaunt woman whose voice seems to chew on itself. And it's in these moments of aching for Jason, at the climax of my sadness, that I catch myself wondering, what if they actually did it? I get a terrifying flash of them in the woods doing the things they've been accused of, and I feel a pang of guilt as if I've betrayed them simply by doubting their innocence for a moment. But here's the thing, I have no idea. I can look at the evidence as mediated by a documentary and feel outraged. I can look at the court's eventual decision to overturn its first decision, practically speaking, and I can feel confirmed in that outrage. I can look at the faces of these boys and feel the strength of truth in what they say, but I can't ever know. No one can know except for them and the person who did it, if that person is out there. So I feel my heart breaking toward a truth I can't be entirely sure of. It's an odd sort of vertigo, affective conviction thrust against epistemological uncertainty. Doing his first film interview in jail, Jason drinks a mellow yellow and eats a Snickers bar. This is somehow the saddest part of the scene, sadder even than the things he says. To think of how these treats are nothing in the face of everything, but still the only things he got to choose all day. Empathy is easier when it comes to concrete particulars. I can't imagine being in prison, but I can imagine choosing a snack. So I'm pulled close to the fact of Jason's candy bar, and once close to this detail, feel suddenly overwhelmed by the split that renders it irrelevant the essential divide between his incarceration and my freedom. Jason is free as well now, and I wonder what he eats. I wonder what he missed most. But on screen, still in jail, all he can do is drink a pea yellow soda. He says he couldn't kill an animal or a person. He talks about his iguana. It's his favorite of all his pets. I understand the detail of this iguana as an instance of editorial construction. How can you see a boy who looks 10 years old talking about his iguana and believe he's a murderer? I'm aware that the filmmakers are essentially deploying this moment, how it proclaims Jason's innocence more effectively, affectively than his own denial. But I'm also complicit in the vision they've offered me. I believe what Jason says about his iguana. I believe what he says about not killing those boys. His lawyer asks him, what does he want to do once the trial is over? Maybe go to Disneyland, he says. He's never been on a trip except to some mineral springs nearby. Sounds like hero springs in his mumbling, though he might have just said hot. I want to picture Jason Baldwin on a trip. I want to be inside his head when he hears not guilty, and I want to follow him on an airplane all the way to Anaheim. This is one of the delusions documentary invites. If it's all edited anyway, if it's all artifact, couldn't it take another turn? Couldn't there be another ending? Um, and the essay goes on, goes on from there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop and read another shorter piece um, that's also interested in this question of how something that's made, a documentary or a book, 
or a photograph um, invites us to feel close to something, to somebody else's experience, to a moment in history, to a choice, um, but also how there's, there's always that distance that remains. Um, and also, we're always bringing our own baggage to the encounter, um, our own lives, our own desires, our own prejudices. Um, all of that is always there with us. Um, and this piece uh, is actually a Connecticut, Connecticut piece. I wrote it when I lived in New Haven, and it is partially about moving there. So it feels right to read here. It's called The Broken Heart of James Agee. Many nights that autumn, I went to a bar where the floor was covered with peanut shells, and I drank, and I read James Agee. Liquor carried his vision of trauma all through me, twisted me pliable to the loss, and I wasn't afraid to think like this, pliable to the loss, because I was drunk, and drunk meant sentiment was not only permissible but imperative, it was boundless. Turns out, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men wasn't about famous men. It was about bedbugs and mildewed bridal caps and farmhouses like cracked nipples on the land. It was about how A.G. wanted to fuck one of the women he was writing about. Also, it was about guilt. Mainly, it was about guilt. Originally, it was a magazine article gone rogue. In 1936, Fortune magazine told A.G. to write a journalistic piece about sharecroppers in the Deep South, and he gave them a spiritual dark night of the soul instead. They rejected it. He wrote another 400 pages. It's a hard book to classify. It's got sections that don't seem to belong together, discussions of cotton prices and denim overalls and the soul as an angel nailed to a cross. It uses colons somewhat like this sentence does, rabidly. It's so long-winded and beautiful, you want to shake it by the bones of its gorgeous shoulders and make it stop. But the difficulty of closure is one of its obsessions, the endlessness of labor and hunger. It's trying to tell a story that won't end. I was trying at the time I read it to tell a story of my own. I'd recently returned to America after living in Nicaragua, where I'd been robbed and punched in the face one night, drunk. My nose had been broken, then partly fixed by an expensive surgeon in Los Angeles. I'd moved to New Haven, where it seemed like someone was always getting mugged. I was afraid to walk alone in the dark. Nearly all is cruelly stained, A.G. wrote, in the tensions of physical need. There's a notion we absorb about suffering, that it should expand us, render us porous. But this didn't happen to me. I felt shrunk. Damage became fear. It became an insistence. I read A.G. thinking about his own guilt when he was supposed to be thinking about three Alabama families, and I thought about myself when I was supposed to be thinking about A.G. Or else, I thought of everyone who wasn't me, back on the streets of Granada. I thought of the boys I'd tutored some afternoons, glue-addicted and homeless with their runny noses and loose pants, catching them as they prowled the cantinas of Calle Calzada looking for money and company. I thought of Luis, who'd fallen asleep on the steps of the home where I lived and how I hadn't invited him inside at night, only woken him up, nudged his shoulder because he was blocking the door. I inspected 
This memory for the shown seems of a moral. What should I have done? Maybe A.G. kept writing because he was looking for the stitching of a moral, too. Maybe that's why he couldn't stop. I loved getting sad about A.G. because his sadness wasn't mine. My face was claustrophobic and A.G. was something else. He was something I wasn't. Tragedy is secondhand. Faulkner wrote that. Which meant, to me, families in Alabama hurt more than I ever would. And I could show up at a dingy bar and admit that. This wasn't enough, but it was something. A.G. felt this about his own book. It wasn't enough, but it was something. He writes of a woman's daily work in the cotton fields. How is it possible to be made clear enough? The many processes of wearying effort which make the shape of each one of her living days. How is it to be calculated the number of times she has done these things, the number of times she is still to do them? How conceivably in words is it to be given as it is in actuality the accumulated weight of these actions upon her and what this accumulation has made of her body and what it has made of her mind and of her heart and of her being. Empathy is contagion. A.G. catches it and passes it to us. He wants his words to stay in us as deepest and most iron anguish and guilt. They have stayed. They do stay. They catch as splinters still in the open, supplicating palms of this essay. If it were possible, A.G. claims, he wouldn't have used words at all. If I could do it, he wrote, I'd do no writing at all here. In this way, we are prepared for the 400 pages of writing that follow. A piece of the body torn out by the roots, he continues, might be more to the point. A.G. doesn't offer actuality. He only wonders what this actuality might look like, an adequate description, what this accumulation has made, and suspends that possibility in the margins of his book, everything he can't manage. On the question of poverty and its effect on consciousness, he is merciless. The brain is quietly drawn and quartered. His book does the same to its story, slicing it to pieces and putting it back together in fragments. The house, the dawn, the animals, the men, communism, children. He calls his work the effort to perceive simply the cruel radiance of what is. What is, it seems, was broken. So A.G. broke his book to fit. Subject holds structure in its thrall. Poverty pulls apart consciousness, dissolved into bodily necessity and stricture, and A.G. pulls apart narrative, drawn and quartered. He doesn't think he'll do his subjects justice. I feel sure in advance that any efforts in what follows along the lines I have been speaking of will be failures. He chokes on his words, interrupted by the commas and clauses of his own apologies. He stutters here. He stutters often. I found it hard to talk about getting hurt. I kept trying to make it something larger than itself, that single moment in the street, to make it part of a pattern. The easiest pattern was guilt. My hand had been on a sleeping boy's shoulder, shaking him awake. What does concrete make you dream? I dream of that boy in circles. I dream of where my hand was. I could think forever about the man who hit me, how little he had most likely, and how big a difference that might have made to him to sell my little digital camera wherever he sold my little digital camera. That camera I would have given him easily 
just to keep his hand from striking my face. A.G. went somewhere to look at poverty and tried to take the damage onto himself, to strip away its metaphors and get to some clean, torn truth beneath. The literal feeling, he wrote, by which the words a broken heart are no longer poetic, but are merely the most accurate possible description. What was broken in me that fall wasn't poetry. My face wasn't useful as metaphor or aperture. It was only the accurate description of where a hand had been. What good is guilt, A.G. asked. We ask. We like the sound of the question. It puts a crude finger on a heartbeat in us that won't stop racing, a pulse broken in sympathy. It makes us talk. It makes us talk about ourselves. It makes us confess. We want to purge something that even confession won't justify. That sleeping boy. A.G. drank when he wrote, and I drank when I read him. A.G. threw himself at the feet of his subjects, and I couldn't even bring myself to walk alone at night with my bone-broken nose and my vodka-flung and fluttering heart. You get drunk and then you get sentimental, or else you get drunk and get hit. I told myself there was something dense and meaningful in my fear, an earned experience, the residue of contact, a cruel radiance, but truly there was nothing but my arms crossed over my chest as I walked on empty streets and no one coming after me in the dark.